You're listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast with me, Susan Romsdorf-Terry. Luke Romsdorf-Terry, where we read a book from the prolific Cat Who Mystery series and discuss it. On this episode, we're talking about the second book in the series, The Cat Who Ate Danish Modern. Not modern Danish, as I have said many <laughs> times with this series. Yeah, a very different thing, a chair versus a pastry. Now, when was this book published? 1967, the second book in the series, and uh, she's already establishing her, her pattern of writing a book a year. Interesting, because the previous book, as again, was 66, and it'll be that way until we reach the, the first six books, correct? No, actually, the gap will be uh, after the next book. So, oh! Well, there's only three. There's only three in the original set, and then it's a 20-year break to book four, and then we go into the rest of the series. Oh, wow, I thought somehow there were more in this original... Now, this book uh, was published in 1966. Is there an audiobook reader 67. of this? The 67, yes. Is there an audiobook reader? It's uh, still, again, only available on CD, but it is also read by George Goodall, um, who is wonderful voice actor. If you get a chance to find one of the CDs of this, I do recommend listening to it. He does a wonderful job, and he's just fun to listen to. Now, with this, uh, the, uh, what we're going to do, again, is we're going to read the synopsis, or Susan, rather, is going to give her synopsis that she has condensed, and I am pretty much going to just be giving color commentary, because uh, if it's not obvious, I have not read this book. <laughs> as, and and as should be obvious, but we're going to say it anyway, just to say, just to say spoilers ahead. Again, 50-year-old book. I can't really prevent anything, prevent spoilers, but spoilers ahead. We will give you uh, a few seconds to go read the book and then come back and listen. That's enough. <laughs> now on to the synopsis. All right. So this is the cat who read, who ate, da who read Danish <laughs> The cat who ate Danish It's water. infectious. It is. It is. <laughs> we open the book with Quill getting a new assignment from his editor at the Daily Fluxion, writing for their new interior design magazine supplement, which AKA is a giant advertising boon. Because of course, taking a prize winning crime reporter and after putting him on the fine art beat, the very next step you want to take is interior design. They're just playing to all of Quill's strengths right now, it Absolutely. seems. Either way, getting the uh, getting this gig is is an excellent thing because Quill is about to is about to be evicted from his apartment now that of course GBM 3s house that's uh, George Bonifield Mount Clemens the third. I was going to say, please give this man's glorious full name. <laughs> yes, George Bonifield Mount Clemens the third. Uh, <laughs> his house is finally out of being sold by his I assume sister, who's the only relative we we got mentioned. What and, and do we have her name? No. Oh. It's probably like Sarah Smith or something. Oh, no. It's got to be like you... Uh, oh, if you think the man didn't make up that name. it's It has to be something like, you know, Arutus or something. Arutus <laughs> Blamfort. That's a Patton Oswalt joke, but anyway. Regardless. Quill's about to be evicted because they finally sold the house, and so he's no longer going to have his cushy little apartment. Mm. And so he needs to find a new place for him and Coco to live. He is looking for this new place to live when he gets sent out in his very first assignment for this interior design magazine, which, by the way, is titled Gracious Abodes. <laughs> and there are a lot of jokes about this throughout the book. Um, one person says it reminds them of sweet tea and peach melba. Wow. Okay. Accurate description, actually. I, I don't doubt it. I'll take your word for that one. Now, quick question. How, many, how much time has passed between this and the first book? Not a lot. I'd probably say less than six months because he is still living in GBM 3's house. Right, that's why I was curious. So it's not a huge, um, it's not a huge time gap. Okay. So we're pretty much picking up not too terribly far from where the first book left off. All right. So 
he, uh, he, he goes out on his first assignment for Gracious Abodes, which has been set up by a interior design studio known as the Like Starkweather Studio, <laughs> which is run by uh, Bookish Starkweather and Personable Like, if we didn't realize that was a pun. Uh, well, and it's spelled L-Y-K-E. Now, do they have first names, Starkweather and... If I said I actually don't remember Starkweather's name, he is that forgettable of a character. Oh, no. <laughs> I think it's Lyle. No, I, I no, okay. Now, now I remember. It's Lyle Starkweather and David Like. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> now, David Like is an interesting character. He apparently thinks it's perfectly appropriate to kiss his female clients on the temple and demand <laughs> that they cook special dishes for his dinner invitations. So he's taking pages from Richard Dawson then Absolutely. in Family Feud. All yeah, right. his personality is really the reason for the studio's success, and he makes millions of dollars for the studio by flirting with the wives of his client. And remember, this is millions in 1960s dollars. Dude is making bank on personality. <laughs> so what he set up for them is a house with some custom cabinetry and some interesting antique and design work uh, designed to showcase the owner's fabulous collection of jade. And this is for a family called the Tates. Now, the Tates live out in a suburb of this. What did, what did you say that the uh, that the um, the metropolis with no name is now? Known oh, as? it is a uh, Shaklevroit. Shaklevroit. So this is a suburb of Shaklevroit, uh, known in proper rich person speak as Muggy Swamp. <laughs> And they actually address this in the book with the idea that rich people don't want to live in places called Happy Valley and Sunny Views and things like that. No, no, no. Rich people want to live places that sound terrible. So hence, all of the rich people that get mentioned um, for this in the next couple of books, they talk about living in Muggy Swamp. Greenland has ice and Iceland is, is very, very nice. nice. It's the same kind of principle. So Quill and his photographer, uh, Odd Bunsen again. Again? I don't think we talked... We didn't mention him in the last book, I don't think. He was the photographer in the, in the first book. No, I would have remembered that name. Okay, anyway. Odd Bunsen, well, welcome. Odd Bunsen's <laughs> yes. back. Hooray. <laughs> All right, so anyway, Odd Bunsen <laughs> is his photographer. And Odd Bunsen actually plays a great role in this in this book later. So he and Odd go out to this house in Muggy Swamp to meet the Tates, photograph some of the pictures from the Jade collection. Now, this uh, collection of Jade is worth three quarters of a million in 1967, which translates to almost six million today. So this is a pretty intensive collection. Now, not only does this uh, does Mr. Tate have a fabulous collection of jade, he also has a chronically ill wife. And this is our first introduction to Yum Yum, who in th at this point is known argumentatively as either Freya or you. The husband and wife can't agree on a name. There's a whole big thing. Uh, where <laughs> they, the husband introduces the cat as you, which is the Chinese word for jade. The wife gets upset and says, no, her name's Freya. That is really the only thing we hear of the wife until there's a moment at the end of this photography session where she demands that the cat gets photographed, which of course doesn't work because we're working on timed exposures, which is a whole big thing with photography in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Basically, mm -hmm. things don't hold still. So nervous cat, long exposure, right. not a good plan. That's not just a, it's not a point and click like it is now. Sadly, no. They do this photography shoot. They go back and everything's getting ready. To, everything goes to print. Beautifully. Everything goes pretty smoothly. There's no errors that they see. Naturally, the day after it runs, the house is burgled, the jade is stolen, and Mrs. Tate dies in the night. Oh, no. All at once. All at once this happens. So the Tate house is, is, is burgled, the jade is stolen, and Mrs. Tate is dead. Wow. And, poor, and, and let's also keep in mind at this point, this means that poor Yum Yum is now at the... Uh, is now at the mercy of the husband who can't remember her... of the, uh, the husband who couldn't remember her. Oh, this poor cat. Uh, poor cat. So... 
Understandably, after this happens, no one now wants to be featured in this magazine, and people are pulling their houses right and left, right, left, and sideways. And Cole is scrambling. But thanks to David Like, he gets invited to a party at David Like's apartment at the Villa Veranda Apartments. That's the name of the complex. That's the name really. of the complex. Uh, they also describe it as being shaped like a bent waffle. <laughs> 1960s architecture. Gotta love it. Alrighty. But at this party, he meets a man named Harry Noyton, who is a very wealthy man who happens to have a fabulous apartment in the building that he's not going to be using for the next six months, year, whatever. Well, how convenient for how Quill. How convenient for Quill. And Harry Noyton being the generous personality that he is, he offers the apartment to Quill um, with the with the expectation that, you know, answer, you know, pick up my mail, answer my phone, go Basically, it. house it. Yes. Take Basically, house it. Sure. And Harry has no problem with the cat, so Quill and Coco, uh, Quill and Coco get to move in. Wonderful. The next uh, person that Quill decides to interview for this lovely magazine of his, now that housing is taken care of, <laughs> he gets sent by, I believe it's the women's, the, uh, the women's editor, who are very pissed, by the way, that Quill got handed the plush assignment of gracious abodes. And so there's a whole thing running throughout this book about the women's department saying, well, Quill isn't really doing the job. You should really give it back to the women's department where it belongs. Not that they're wrong, but Quill, now that he's been given the assignment, understandably is like, no, I'm going to do a good job with this. Mm -hmm. right. has, he does have some integrity. So anyway, assigned by the uh, the woman's editor, he follows up on a tip with a with a designer called Mrs. Mitty. So Walter Mitty's wife. This woman, this Mitty does <laughs> charming interiors. When he goes to her studio, he meets Alacoke, call me Cokie Wright who is an architect who's working for Miss Mitty because no one will hire a girl architect. Again, it's the 1960s. It's the 1960s. Now, I just want to ask one thing. Alacoque, is that a... I know we're going to say all names are made up, but is that a real name, Alacoque? I didn't actually look up the uh, the uh, the history of the name Alacoque. So Miss Mitty and her charming interiors finally uh, finds a house that she thinks Quill can photograph, despite all of the problems that he's previously had. She sent him to a boarding house that she's done in early American with four poster beds and lace curtains. Hmm. This turns out to not only look like a bordello, but it actually is one and it gets raided by the police again shortly after the feature goes to print. Oh, jeez. Man, the, the Daily Fluxion is just not doing well. Not at all. So Gracious Abode's not doing well. The managing editor keeps threatening to pull Quill from the magazine and give it to the women's department, which, as I said, is where the women's department believes it should be belonged in the first place. But somehow or another, Quill manages to convince the editor to let him keep the assignment, and he continues his investigation into what really happened to the Tate's Jays. Because, again, nosy, nosy man. Mm -hmm. And he cannot let this go. He goes to another party thrown by David Like. Unsurprisingly, David Like throws a lot of parties. And he, you know, now, and of course now he lives in the same building, since he got Harry Noyton's apartment. So he's able to attend many parties, all the ones he throws, he can exactly. go. Exactly. He's, you know, they're right down the hall. And <laughs> while he's at this party, Quill meets the soon-to-be ex-wife of Harry Noyton, whose name is Natalie. And Natalie has decided to give up being a wife and mother to weave custom draperies for designers and shows up to the party wearing a dress of her own creation. Peachy colored with metallic threads. I'm mentioning this because it's important for later. <laughs> not just um, because it, it strikes a costuming note to you. It, not just because it strikes a costuming note. Um, weaving in general, especially in, in the 60s when you're weaving these, these hand-woven textiles, it's, it's a chunky weave. It's very distinctive. There's also apparently a lot of fringe because, again, 1960s. Uh, an update real quick on uh, Alacoque. Their only reference I could find is Margaret Mary Alacoque, who was a French nun who was the prominent purveyor of the devotion of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in modern Catholic form. So take that for what it will. I'm going to say her parents were aspirational for her, mor for her morals. 
Sounds like it, because I have a feeling she's going to play a pretty un immoral part in this. In this. Give or take for as much as they, you really have with these kind of books. Gotcha. Um, Koki, <laughs> to, to, come, to come right back to this, yes, she literally says, call me Koki. That was a nice nice through line and nice way of connecting. Absolutely. You just threw it in there. We did not plan that. Koki is, of course, Quill's date to this uh, to this party as, of course. Uh, at David Light's. And she's not impressed with Natalie. Women do not do very well in these early books, I really got to say. I'll talk about that later. <laughs> but Koki is not impressed with Natalie and says, I quote, When I think of all the trouble I go to to stay thin and stylish, and she shows up babbling and frizzy and 30 pounds overweight, everyone goes for her, including that cat. <laughs> because Coco got invited to the party, it should be mentioned, and he comes and everyone's very impressed because Coco is, of course, a beautiful Siamese, mm -hmm. lovely and charming, and he immediately takes to Natalie. Did Coco just show up on his own? or did No, Coco went back to the apartment, he got okay. him and brought, and brought him you to say, the party. Did someone announce him or he just come in? Is he... Yes, he, 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 was <laughs> he was announced because Quill brought him. <laughs> and he was predictably a hit. Now, in Koki's defense of her comment about that cat, Coco is not particularly friendly to her and actually even bites her and ends the evening. Oh, no. So she can be forgiven a little bit of annoyance with the cat. Sure. Coco also has uh, developed a distressing habit of eating and puking up wool, including most of Quilleran's ties. Oh. So something's, something is very wrong. He caps this off by eating a chunk of a very expensive wool chair, which is the Danish modern of the title. <laughs> the cat who... <laughs> the cat who ate Danish, Danish modern. modern. Oh, lovely, lovely, yes. lovely, lovely. But now, Quill's getting desperate with trying to find something for gracious abodes. And he gets permission from Natalie to photograph her and Harry's, Henry, Harry, Henry's country house for the magazine. Because, of course, they're about to put the house in the market right. now that uh, Natalie has abandoned her children and uh, hmm. gone off to weave draperies for designers. Because that's going to end well. Unfortunately, when Quill and Odd Bunsen arrive, he's, they're told by the maid that Natalie has changed her mind and they can't photograph so, due to the short notice, David Like offers his own apartment to be photographed. Obviously, as his designer, his, his apartment looks fantastic. Of course. One would ex expect nothing less. So, Quill goes back to the Villa Veranda to uh, photograph the apartment uh, to get everything done before his deadline. On his way home, by the way, he stops to buy a harness and leash for Coco, who seems to clearly enjoy going visiting, but as a sensible pet owner, he is not going to just let him wander free. He wants to try and contain him as much as you can contain a cat. Well, especially a cat on a leash, so... Exactly. So this proves prophetic when Like suggests bringing Coco in to decorate the sofa, and Quill obliges. <laughs> Afterwards, decorate. Yes, decorate. <laughs> Afterwards, the photographer invites the other two men to dinner at the press club. Press clubs were apparently a huge thing. There were a lot of... They were, they were popular in every major city, where they would kind of be the place where the press could meet and mingle from various papers and let down their hair and socialize and pass. Well, this is, back in the 60s, like you said, there was, you know, not just only one. Well, there was also not only one or two major newspapers. Exactly. So there are plenty of other newspapers and plenty of other departments and reporters. And like we've talked about, you know, there's a high, there was the art scene and there's the, the fashion beat, which, you know, nowadays that all gets condensed into, say, entertainment or lifestyle in one paper, and you're lucky if you get a, its own section. Exactly. So, it's so the press club is a big thing, and it's a very popular place to go, in, but of course you can't get in unless you're with a member of the press. Which luckily... Which luckily, they all are. Um, so they're bringing, they try to bring Like to dinner, but Like declines saying he has a dinner date. Quill and photographer, no, again, this is Odd Bunsen, have dinner, and Odd has a few too many drinks. Um, so Quill decides to take Odd back to the apartment to help him sober up before he heads out to his suburban home, his wife, and his six children. This is how many kids Odd Bunsen has? Yeah, Odd Bunsen has six 
children. Uh, uh, wow. Yes. Good for you, Odd Bunsen. Exactly. I would have remembered this guy from the last book. I I'm, apologize. I no, that's okay. I I, we, I'm he pops up. Uh, or he he popped up in the he popped up in the first book. He pops up in this book, and then I don't think we see him again. But I'll, oh no! We'll see if I'm right. Oh, we need to write a side story about series Odd about Bunsen and his six kids. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so once Quill and Odd Bunsen get back to the apartment, an incredibly dramatic scene ensues. Coco is missing from Quill's <gasps> apartment. Oh, oh no! And they are checking out on the patio and everything else, and all they can find is the empty harness and. Uh, and, and the uh, the six the, the six to twelve feet I can't remember which one it is of cord that they'd use as a leash. Six to twelve feet for a leash? I know that's long for a dog. Uh, yes. What? It's it's, it's so, a sixty. It's a sixties. So we're we're we'll just, just gonna that's let a blanket. That go. But anyway, blanket this is incredibly dramatic because they are. Um, you remember the description of the apartment building looking like a bed waffle? Right. That means you can see across. Ah. And they look across to where David Likes' apartment is, and they see Coco sitting on top of the TV. He has managed to, Coco has managed to go from balcony to balcony to get over to David's apartment and get in. So now, of course, they have to figure out how to get him back. They, of course, do the normal things. They go and knock on the door. They right. call him. Mm -hmm. And he's not answered. Oh. So oh, no. Aunt Bunsen, in his <laughs> drunken state, granted, this is, this is over two brandies. So, you know, maybe so he's maybe a, really a So Aunt Bunsen's a cheap date, a cheap as it were. Date. <laughs> Aunt Bunsen decides it's a great idea to do exactly what the cat did. Oh, no. And 17 stories up, oh, the guy God. is leaping from balcony to balcony with the wonderful description of yelling, Yahoo! Oh, and the Yahoo gets fainter and fainter as he gets around the building oh. before he gets there. I'm just, God, I'm, I'm seeing, like, just with the name Odd Bunsen, I'm sorry, I'm seeing Paul Giamatti doing this in my head in the movie version of these, and I love it. You're not going to be far off, actually. I think that would be a great call. Anyway. anyway if we were casting the movie. But anyway. This Yahoo, like, he's goofy. So, Bob Bunsen gets over there, and suddenly Quill gets a very sober call from Bunsen. Uh-oh. Because he's calling to report that David has been murdered. Ah, uh, of course. Coco is fine, but... Well, he was on the TV, so... Exactly. He was sitting on the TV totally fine. He was chilling. It should be mentioned that before Bunsen called Quill, he called the police and the paper first. <laughs> this is this is the old school newspaper man oh, that yeah. we miss. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we do not have that now. Oh, we don't wow. have that anymore. No, we do not, sadly. After this adventure, once again, the managing editor threatens to reassign Quill after this latest catastrophe to the church beat. There was a church beat? Church beat? Apparently. Well, there was a huge Catholic population in uh, in Chicago. In Chicago sure. Right. <laughs> sure. Once again, though, Quill manages to convince him to keep him on for just an extra week. Just an extra week. And so now he's... Because, of course, Quill thinks he's getting close to solving the mystery of what happened to the Jade. He's been doing some research. He's been talking to people, trying to figure out what kind of a person George Tate was. And... What kind of enemies he had exactly. or anything like that. What no, the sure, mystery sure. is. And then following a tip from the press club bartender, Quill finds his way to a psychiatrist. Yes, that's how they wrote it in the book. Psychiatrist. A psychiatrist to help diagnose Coco's wool eating. Well, of course. His name's Jackson Galaxy. <laughs> no, sorry. Go ahead. So anyway, <laughs> the psychiatrist who diagnoses Coco's wool eating as a, as a neurosis uh, due to, brought on by loneliness, and it's suggested that the acquisition of a female cat could keep him company. Ah. And there just so happens to be a female Siamese at the tape. And this woman knows this because she is a private breeder of exotics. So she's the one who actually bred the cat for the Tates um, and then mentions that, you know, it took her forever to get her fee because, of course, rich people don't pay. 
Of course not. Through that, she also knows that George Tate is planning to sell the house and leave and do all of these things that make it very suspicious for where all this jade might have gone. Right. There's been some talk about, you know, maybe he's not quite as broken up about where the jade might have gone. The houseboy disappeared, apparently. Um, and his wife is dead, so he's he's looking to be footloose and fancy free as this is going on. Mm-hmm. Quillerin, in a good testament to his character, suddenly goes, well, what about the cat? And it should also be pointed out the psychiatrist is the one who suggests that Coco's attack on Koki is due to that name similarity. She Coco su- and Koki. Coco and Koki. So she suggests that the lady friend might possibly want to change her name because Lord knows the cat's not changing his I would just like to say that you're saying psychiatrist. You clearly have been practicing that phrase before we recorded because it's just rolling off your tongue. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad to know the practice. Because I'm having a hard time saying. So, with that new information, mm-hmm. we, we know why we know why Coco is eating is uh, is, is eating wool. We know that there is a female Siamese at the Tate's house. Quill gets a bit of a break in the. Uh, let me see. If it, uh, Quill gets a break in the case of the missing jades. Because he interviews their former housekeeper. Mm-hmm. The Tate's former the housekeeper. Tate's former housekeeper. Okay. Who reveals that Tate actually hates the Daily Fluxion. The, apparently, several years before, there was a big scandal mm-hmm. involving uh, it, it, involving an underage girl and, and all of these horrible Whoa. things. And it would turn into this giant sex scandal in the paper. And the Tates are an old enough family that this was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So ever since, he has hated the Fluxion. And he offered the house, and it, the the housekeeper theorizes that he offered the house to stage the theft and embarrass the paper. So Quill, playing dumb, calls calls Mr. Tate to arrange to trade a set of photographs of the jades for the cat, and Tate agrees to meet him at the house. Mm-hmm. Quill, observing the photographs and helped along by Coco, who decided to lick the photograph at a very particular point, reveals <laughs> what looks like what looks like it might be a secret uh, a secret compartment in one of the cabinets from the jade. Okay, or so it could be hidden. Quill is thinking that is exactly what what Quill is thinking. Okay, so he takes Coco along again. The reason why we need this harness and we need this leash, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and this is why it's twelve feet. And he <laughs> takes Coco along, and that he so Tate goes to find the cat after he's let Quill into the room where the jade used to be. So Quill is nosing around, and he noses just enough to find that it is in fact a hidden cabinet, and inside is the jade. But he's so busy congratulating himself, he doesn't see Tate approaching him behind with a jade harpoon. Jade harpoon? Foot-long, razor-sharp jade harpoon. God, they're 1% in their murder weapons. I know. Fortunately, Quill is saved by Coco because Tate is attacked actually by both cats. Coco and the formerly <laughs> named you or Freya. And the harpoon goes wide, so it only so it only slices Quillerin's hand. And Coco manages to tangle Tate in his leash, knocking him over. And then Quill ties him up with his belt. Uh-huh. And... Which is the second time he's done that. that That's a Quillerin special. Yes, well, he calls the police and, of course, the paper. Like you do, like the old school newsman he is. So now, Quillerin takes his new cat and his, uh, you know, his mystery-solving prowess, and he goes goes home. And Coco, back at the apartment, um, leads him to one of his chucked-up balls of yarn. Um, because he's been hiding these chucked up balls of yarn under a piece of furniture in this in Harry Noyton's chucked apartment. up ones that he's thrown yes, up. He's thrown, he's okay, thrown gotcha. up. He's he he can't really digest them. He just throws them up. Gotcha. Um, so that's how he knew that he was eating the chair, aside from seeing you know the ripped part of the chair. Mm-hmm. But when it's discovered, when Quill goes to retrieve Minty Mouse, we're still Minty Mouse is still a thing. Um, <laughs> he goes to retrieve Minty Mouse from under the piece of furniture and knocks out a whole bunch of these you know 
other well, balls of yarns balls. and you just kick them into there. One of them is, uh, unfortunately, a distinctive peachy color with metallic threads. I was wondering That's how that was going to come back. Important. Okay. So it turns out Natalie Noyton had convinced herself that David Like would marry her when her divorce was finalized. And she was so convinced of that that she gave up her children, gave up her marriage. And when she realized that wasn't the case, she shot him in a moment of passion. Whoa. And then the reason that Quill and Odd Bunsen couldn't photograph the house is because she had already shot herself. So sad. Wow. Sad crime of passion plus, plus, you know, the killer killing themselves. So that, so that mystery is solved. And I have to say I really kind of like in this book that the, it's the mystery of the jades that's really driving the story. It's not the murder. Right. No, it's, so, I like. Kind of I, nice. I kind of like that too because yeah. I, not that the murder became an afterthought, but it was definitely. Is that going to be tied up? Is that going to be solved? And lo yeah. and behold. Lo and behold, it was. Oh wow. So, this and this ends the story. Quill and Koki, who now who has the lovely line of "Call me Al." <laughs> Wander off into the evening after the big reveal while Coco and the newly named Yum Yum happily wash each other's ears in the Danish modern chip. Aww. And that's, that's how the very book sweet. Ends. Now, why why the change to Yum Yum? As the psychiatrist said, for he's going to marry Yum Yum. Come, come. Your anger pray very for all shall be merry. I think you had better succumb. Come, come. <laughs> Perfect. Wonderful, lovely Gil Gilbert and Sullivan reference. Absolutely. So, of course, if you have a Coco, you need a Yum Yum. You need a Yum Yum. Exactly. It's beautiful. All right, now, so we have our, uh, the victims of this book were... Mrs. Tate, who died of natural causes, mm -hmm. and David Like, who was shot by Natalie Norton, who then killed herself. And the killer method, as you mentioned, was Mr. Tate had a heart attack, apparently? Miss, uh, Mrs. Tate. Mrs. Tate, had, sorry, had a, yes. yes. You know, Miss, Mr. Tate goes to jail. Uh, Mrs. Tate either had a heart attack, whatever, died of fright. They mm -hmm. never really explain why she died, but why, why or how she died. She just died. Just died. Uh, she wasn't well. It was it was kind of expected. And then Natalie Norton, who committed suicide. Norton, actually. Norton. It, 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 the uh, I, I, I write out all of these summaries, and uh, sometimes autocorrect doesn't like some of the funkier spellings of the names, but it is Norton. Well, I can't imagine. You know, that's a fairly common name. You see that in all the gift shop license plates. Oh, absolutely. Norton. <laughs> Buy me a license plate. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, of course, this is when we first meet Yum Yum, yum which yum. is right. And so and yum, now we have the pairing of Coco and Yum Yum. It's wonderful. Now, what are some, it, there were all sorts of parties and all sorts yes. of press happenings going on. What were some of the food that was mentioned? Um, in this one, the biggest thing is the crab puffs. Crab puffs. Where were, where were crab puffs? They were, of course, at David Likes' apartment. Well, obviously. And because he has them catered. He always has his parties catered. <laughs> or had, I guess. I will say past tense now, yeah. <laughs> But yeah. crab puffs. But crab puffs, and they're uh, they're very popular. He has them at all the parties. Quillerin frequently brings them home for Coco. Mm -hmm. Cats love so, seafood. Cats love seafood. Yeah. And let's face facts: Coco has expensive taste. Well, obviously, I'm pretty sure Yum Yum does now too. She will eventually. Yeah. <laughs> now you have some thoughts on this book, and I, I see that there's see. a few things about uh, how women are treated. I do because. Women are really not treated well in this book. This is a running theme of the first it is, the first Especially series. in these earlier books. I mm -hmm. think she does a lot better later in the series. And I don't know whether this is because this would be what would be expected of her to write about if she's writing from a male perspective, that women are going to be reduced to mothers, sex objects, or, um, or children. And that that really kind of runs a theme through uh, through some of the earlier books. It does get better. Um, 
this really starts off with the editor of the women's department, and part of the reason why Quill is so determined he is going to hold on to this assignment despite being in no way qualified for it. The head of the women's department has been pursuing Quill, who then proceeds to insult and belittle her for most of the first two chapters in his head, not to, not to her face. He is polite enough for that. Pursuing her at romantically? No, pursuing him romantically. Oh, that's what I... Sorry, yes. He danced with her at uh, at one of the press club parties, and apparently, as he put it, there must have been something in his vintage foxtrot that convinced her that he was interesting. <laughs> yes, she described <laughs> it as a vintage foxtrot. A vintage it's a description foxtrot. for a man who doesn't, who doesn't dance often. I like that. Um, <laughs> but this really lays the ground rule for Quill. Mm -hmm. He will never ever be interested in a woman who is actively pursuing him. He's had, as he puts it, enough of bossy females. Also, bluntly, he has a savior complex, and he needs to feel needed by whoever, by whatever woman he pursues. Oh, and this applies wow. to Yum Yum the cat, too. I don't think he would have been as interested in, you know, rescuing in, 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 in adopting another cat if he hadn't been able to go and rescue her. Oh, boy. This, by the way, does not stop him from lusting after 20-year-olds who work for the designer he's there to interview, a.k.a. Alaco Bray. <laughs> and again, I'm not sure if she's writing what a man would think, but there are some descriptions of Alaco that describe her as having straight brown hair that fell like a blanket to her shoulders, hiding her forehead, eyebrows, temples, and cheeks. All that were visible were a pair of roguish green eyes and an appealing little nose, an intelligent mouth, a dainty chin. Her face, then? <laughs> exactly. That's... It's and he continues this this description by describing her knees as leanly upholstered. Le okay. I really have to wonder, though, if this is a thing with the author, whether she was told at one point that she had great knees. So she then writes her hero as paying attention to something that she sees as her best feature. Because knees feature very prominently. It's very weird. That certainly could be a possibility. One thing that's interesting, which is a common, at least this is just an observation I'm seeing based on the descriptions as far as things being dainty and the, uh, the forehead eyebrows and little nose and everything. It's all very as if it's childlike, which goes into sexualization of young girls, which yes. is always... Well, remember, this guy is, in theory, in his, in his mid-40s, pushing 50. And which makes it much worse. Yeah, and he's he's hitting on a twenty-year-old. So that's and, and again, not great. We don't know if this is if this is if this is you know Lillian Jackson Braun, if it's just the way that she was she thought she should write or was told she should write, or if this was just part of what was happening at the time in the sixties. Exactly. Who knows? But it's definitely a ugh, that's now to compare all of that. He describes Mrs. Mitty as a dumpling of a woman in a shapeless hat. It's all she gets. Dumpling of a woman. So she goes well with soup? I don't know. Shapeless. Um, formless. Okay. Very, 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 yeah, okay. along that line. Anyway. Yeah. Some other fun things that, that pop up in this book. Much like the artists in the previous book, the decorators all have their specialties, including one of my favorites, which is PLUG, which stands for Planned Ugliness. <laughs> and this is eclectic taste. Uh -huh. It is, of course, run by the son of one of the city's wealth, second son that should be mentioned, of the city's wealthiest families, who knows everybody and all the scandals. He's invaluable in helping Quill connect the dots with the tastes and, and, and everything else. Sure. There's also a scene with a black interior designer, Jacques Boulanger, Jack Baker to his friends, who gives some background <laughs> on the mysterious David Like. For the most part, this is really interesting information on Like, who's apparently an orphan and grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and then made a success of himself. Baker slash Boulanger also went and made a uh, made a success of himself. He did it by you know pretending to speak French, pretending to speak English with a French accent while living in Paris. Um, <laughs> this whole thing, though, 
it reads like the, excuse me, stewardess, I speak jive scene from the moving airplane. <laughs> you know? And it ages about as well with him describing things as just crazy. And my wife is a real swinger in the kitchen. Jesus. <laughs> Peppered with, you know, accurate French phrases, which is kind of interesting. Uh, there, there, this is also the first incidence of what becomes very clear later on uh, with a, of a fascination of Braun with French. Mm -hmm. and with French people, French food, um, French language. It, pop, it, it runs throughout the books uh, and, and at one point becomes a very major issue. So um, clearly a Francophile. I really think she is. And, it, it, you know, for the most part, it's kind of fun. And this, the scene is really great. Uh, I'm really sad that we don't get to see more from uh, from Jacques Boulanger and maybe have seen a little bit more of that rivalry before David Like died. Mm -hmm. But, again, writing these books is kind of slice of life. We don't get that, that kind of background. This sure. is really all we get. So he becomes a very memorable side character. Exactly. And I think that is that that's all that really popped out to me. There are a lot of other very silly scenes, like when they're... They're photographing the what they later find out is the bordello. Um, oh no! <laughs> oh, it's funny. You can very you know if reading it with 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 reader irony, you you can see that they are setting this up to be a bordello. And of course, they're not going to realize it until it's too late. Until it's too late, and it's, and it's a whole horribly thing. awkward. It's so funny. Oh, jeez! It's delightful. A lot of fun. Uh, so now going with the first book when we came up with the rating system, where would you? rank this as far as four cat paws out of four uh, where would you rank this as far as out of four cat paws i would give this four cat paws four because wow. this is one of my favorites of the early mysteries it's solid writing it's great characters and i also appreciate that quill isn't hunting for a killer so much as he's looking for the missing jades mm -hmm. he's looking at a mystery which frankly is much more interesting when he's looking for that not just a killer and he solves the murder almost as an afterthought all right so the last one was no, it was three and a half. It was three no, it leaning was three. towards two. It was three, yeah, it was three, almost two. That's, that's correct. Yeah, heading down. But this one, uh, four, four. But I give this one four. And wow, okay. When, when people ask me <clears throat> what books I recommend they read, if they're only going to read a handful, this is usually the first one I tell them to read. Interesting. It's a good introduction to Quill as a character. You get to meet Yum Yum. And you get an idea of the setting without having to go through all of the crazy backstory of George Bonifield, not Clemens III. <laughs> This is a good place to start, and it's actually more in the format of how she writes some of the books later. What we see later on the tw after the 20-year gap. Exactly. Interesting. All right. And, of course, we have, uh, I'm sorry, Odd Bunsen. This is now becoming my favorite my favorite character. The it is a great name, and it's very sad that he does not, uh, that he doesn't appear quite as often. Oh, he could have he moved to Pickaxe. It would have been wonderful. He, he could have retired there after his five kids went off to college. He six kids. Six, six kids. My God, Odd Bunsen. You busy man, you. Exactly. <laughs> so four paws, the cat who ate modern Danish. Danish, see? <laughs> see? Yes, four paws for the cat who ate Danish modern. The cat who ate Danish modern. Modern Danish is a pastry you can get at Lamar's. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Well, with that, thank you for listening to The Cat Who Did a Podcast. Join us next time for the third book in the series, which is The Cat Who Turned On and Off. Yes, and before, let's also say that now we are officially on iTunes, so please search for us and find us on iTunes, and you can download latest updates of episodes when they come out there. And until we get our next episode, speaking of which, I'm Luke Ramsdorf-Terry. I'm Susan Ramsdorf-Terry. And happy sleuthing. Thank you.